No, I didn't see that. Gave you that. This is for you, so. Okay, we are in Psalm 11989. Okay, amen. Intro to, uh, to Shepherd's Staff, each divine. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You established the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me. But I will ponder your statutes. All perfection, I see a limit. But your commands are boundless. Pretty wonderful. I, I like the way that they get away with not plagiarizing other people. Yours says, save me, I am yours. And mine says, I am yours, save me. So they just they just swap things around. Because there's a point where, you, you know, you, you just can't think of new words to translate the same thing. So anyway. Um, let's see here. We've got to read today, which is uh, last day of May, isn't it? Yeah. It's the last day of May. Unbelievable. That means that in 28 days, is it 20? Is that my? Yeah, 28 days. I'll have been married 34 years. I, I'm pretty sure it's the 28th of June. <laughs> I, 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 sure it's I, I'll go home and check, but I, I'm pretty That's sure it's the 28th. You need to write in your Bible somewhere. Yeah, I need to remember that. But I, I'm pretty sure 28 June is. Uh, there we go. Okay, May 31st. Contemporary ministers called him the harebrained enthusiast, but we know him as the father of modern missions. Anybody know who the father, father of modern missions is? What? No, he, he was right up there with them. Another guy is a... Uh, no, no, Aquinas is a, uh, was a uh, theologian. It's William Carey. William Carey was born in 1761 to a poor Anglican family in rural England. He wanted to become a professional gardener, but a skin disease prevented him from working out in the sun. He therefore began training as a shoemaker's apprentice at the age of 14. That was a providential career shift because a fellow apprentice, John War, was a Christian. Being from a staunch Anglican family that despised dissenters, Carey was uneasy with the evangelical arguments uh, were presented to him. However, over time, Carey began to feel a growing uneasiness and stings of conscience gradually increasing with regard to War's beliefs. After a traumatic incident, when Carey was caught trying to pass off a counterfeit coin as real money to his employer, he was so ashamed that for the first time he began to see himself as morally bankrupt and in need of salvation. How old was he then? Uh, well, he was 14 when he started. I don't, uh, let's see. You don't see. know about the coin. No. Um, anyway, let's see here. Over the next two years, he came to depend on a crucified Savior for pardon and salvation. Although he did not attend high school or college, Carey possessed a keen intellect. He taught himself five languages and by the end of his life knew dozens of languages and dialects. Carey became a Calvinistic Baptist preacher and followed a rigid system of study. He studied the classics on Mondays, science and history on Tuesdays, and the Hebrew and Greek scriptures the rest of the week. During this time, he became increasingly burdened for overseas missions. He published a pamphlet called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. 
Well, my question is, if he's a Calvinist, why is he so worried about converting people? Anyway, for years, Carey tried to convince fellow Baptist ministers of the need to form a missionary society in order to spread the gospel across the world. Although the leaders of the denomination kept putting him off, he persisted. On the evening of May 30th, 1792, Carey preached at the annual Baptist Association meeting. His text was Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, and his theme was expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He urged his fellow pastors to commit to venturing forth among the nations with the gospel, having confidence that God would bless the message and extend his kingdom. Carey's address made a profound impression on the ministers in attendance. However, despite Carey's stirring sermon the day before at the business meeting the next morning, the ministers went about their annual agenda in the usual manner and were about to adjourn their meeting without acting on Carey's proposal for overseas missions. Carey was greatly distressed and gripped the arm of Andrew Fuller, who, uh, imploring him, is nothing again going to be done? What uh, re reservations Fuller and the others had that day, May 31st, 1792, they agreed to form the Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. Fuller passed around his snuff box to collect contributions for the new undertaking, later named the Baptist Missionary Society. In 1793, Carey and two other men sailed for India as missionaries. That's the wrong place to go if you got a skin disease from being out in the sun, but well, Carey worked there until his death in 1834 without ever taking a furlough. His comprehensive approach to missions included evangelization, church planning, and Bible translation, but also included working for social reform. He established schools, hospitals, and a savings bank, founded the Agricultural and Horticultural Society of India, started a Bengali newspaper and supervised the start of India's first printing press, paper mill, and steam engine. Wow, what a workhorse. He uh, also taught languages at a local college, wrote a Bengal English dictionary, and founded the first Christian college in Asia. In all, Carey translated the com complete Bible into six languages and portions of it into 29 others. He expected great things from God and attempted great things for God. And God brought them to pass. Do you expect great things from God? Do you attempt great things for God? If you do, God can bring them to pass just as he did for William Carey. And it says in John 14, the truth is anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even great works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask anything in my name and I will do it because the work of the Son brings glory to the Father. Yes, ask anything in my name and I will do it. So let me get this straight. He couldn't garden because of the sun, yet he gardened believers, believers. for the sun. For, yeah, that was very well done. Excellent. Very well done. Let's see here. Um, we have, before we get into anything else, I did not read one of these last week, and I got a pen here. This is the best day of my life. Um, uh, article 8 of the Chicago Statement of Faith says, We affirm that God, in his work of inspiration, utilize the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personality. Now, that's important to understand because it's obvious when you pick up the book of Jeremiah that you're reading somebody different than Isaiah. 
there is no doubt that Jeremiah is not Isaiah. And we can tell that Moses, you know, authored certain things. We can tell the Psalms of David from the Psalms of Korah. It's just obvious. And yet they're inspired by God. And so um, uh, we have different ways of explaining that, that, the doctrine of inspiration. I brought up the one about playing in a, a, a you know, a musical instrument many times. And that's just as good as any, is that uh, somebody writes a piece of music that everybody knows. And if they he writes a new piece of music, they know that guy wrote it. It's his style. But then somebody plays his music, and you can tell that that is the guy playing. You say, hey, that guy is playing that guy's music. You know that it's the same. Well, that's kind of how inspiration works, is that God is working through people. His ultimate style is evident all the way through the pages of the Bible, and yet the individual style of the people comes out. And we yet we have exactly what was originally intended because when a composer composes something and this guy plays it he doesn't change what he composed and yet his unique style is in there so uh that's a wonderful uh, article and people will try to say that god overrode people's will or that people wrote it and it happens to align with god's will those two are completely in error god's will is in the pages of the bible and yet he used the people allowing them to use their own style their own expressions and it was exactly what God intended. So there you go. Uh, we can't completely understand that, but it's good enough. Um, I have one prayer request that I wrote down. Somebody named Lynn Brownlee wants to move to Sarasota, and she asks for prayers for this. So nice place to live. Great thing. So uh, we'll keep that in prayer along with, wow, so many other prayer requests that were sent in this week. And uh, Alan, who uh, I told you he manages the mall I take care of. He was better last saturday before missions work i went and saw him and then he had a relapse and he's they had to reinsert a uh, breathing tube into him and i went to see him again today and he's you know he's just laying there so kind of an example of life in general is the his wife is a christian and she says i don't know how people make it without jesus she says whatever his will and design for alan is that's what it's going to be and i'm not you know she obviously gets upset but at the same time, she understands that God is in control. So anyway, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to come and meet here in this building. We thank you that we have a marketing firm next door instead of a bar. And it was so nice to meet those people today. We pray that their business will be successful. And uh, we thank you for that. We uh, would pray that uh, the final vote uh, at Sarasota County coming up in just two weeks will be favorable for the uh, continuance of the ordinance that we have right now, or just a slight amendment without any uh, major changes that will harm the church or the community. And Lord, we do pray for the things that are on our hearts, for other people that are sick or that have desires in their hearts. Some of them we mentioned today, we lift those up to you. And we also lift up the desire to not stray from your word and that uh, people would listen to these Bible studies, but also check what is said because we're all fallible people and we're all prone to error. And I would pray that that would not be the case with what we say here, but if there is error, that that would be found out by people so they wouldn't be misled by us. And uh, so we thank you for this chance again to come and meet here. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we uh, read our first verse, as I just said, uh, we have, and I'll say it again, right up until the time that uh, uh, we uh, have the meeting is on June 13th. It'll be at 1.30 Ringling. Anybody that can go and uh, we want to have a show of people to support 
what they have already hopefully decided on uh, last week at Sarasota County. It'll be their final vote. You know, they're prone to uh, change their minds. They've already shown that once because they weren't going to accept what we did. And by having a bunch of people come in and say that we want to do this, they changed their minds. And we have no idea what the opposition is going to propose in that meeting. So the more people we have and the more willing we are to stand up and say, we don't want a change, the better. So please keep that in mind. If you can make it on uh, on uh, 13 June at 1.30, Ringling, same be there. you same place. Yep. Okay, so here we are in Romans chapter 11, and we are today in verse 25. And let's see, you can go back to... Wow, where are we going to go? 25. Um, why don't you just go to 22, because that's a therefore. Consider, therefore, kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, uh, provided that you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. If you do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, contrary to nature where grafted into cultivated olive trees. How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, that ought to be so clear and so obvious. I, once again, I've had some people email me and they, they've said exactly what I've said to you in the class. How can people not get verses like this? Anyway, um, the one difference in mine, which I like the way that they translated yours, is it says not be conceited. This one says you should be wise in your own opinion. Well, obviously, most people know what that means, but it's a little more wordy. And so conceited just cuts all, cuts all the fat out. And so I like that. Uh, don't be conceited about this. And the reason why blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It, it, it's so obvious, but some things aren't obvious to some people. Anyway, and once again, what does that tell you? He makes a, go ahead. Distinction. A distinction. He says in one verse, Israel and Gentiles. It, 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 it couldn't be clearer. And yet we claim in the church and many denominations that the church has replaced Israel. It just doesn't make any sense. So anyway, um, somebody from Canada, I talked to him on the phone, was it today or yesterday? Anyway, he says he really loves the comments you guys say, make during the uh, Bible studies, and he loves the fact that we, we uh, you know, have comments here. So if you have something that's pertinent to the particular verse, by all means, I, it was just nice to hear that because I have no idea, you know, unless people tell me what they prefer. Anyway, I'll give you my comments on this right now. Once again, Paul introduces his thought with Four. Okay, that was, uh, as I said, if you go through your Bible, it's more especially in the Greek because you know that it's a preposition, but even in the English, they usually get most of the prepositions right. As you're going through and you circle your prepositions, it will help you line up Paul's thoughts because sometimes we just read right over things. But if you circle therefore and circle for and but and those things or make a, a line under but make a circle around for, you know, so you can make it show a distinction, you, it, it'll help you process what Paul is saying. But Paul starts with four. This will be given to expand on what he said earlier about how much more <coughs> will these who are natural branches, speaking of Israel, be grafted into their own olive tree. The natural branches are 
Israel. Israel, the Jewish people. Exactly. Okay, so we got that right here. Somebody got that right. Some people just don't seem to get it, and they've been teaching forever that that's not the case or something. I don't know. But the natural branches are the Jewish people. Verse 24 hinted that they will be brought back into the spiritual graces of God. Verse 25 shows us this explicitly. It's explicit. It's right there in black and white. They will be brought back into God's graces. Israel of the future has a purpose, which means when Paul wrote this, and Israel of the future is back in the land of Israel now, you would be able to think that people would say one plus one still equals three today. Oh, wait a minute. It equals two today, right? But for some reason, people don't seem to get this. Anyway, in order to convey this notion, he is going to use several key words to highlight the important nature of what is being relayed. One of them is the word ignorant. The other is mystery. That's an important word. When we use the term mystery, it's something that Paul is revealing that is something that was never revealed before explicitly, and he's now revealing it to the church. He also uses the word wise, which is in contradistinction to ignorant. And then he says blindness, and he says fullness. All of these words are going to be used by Paul to express what he is trying to tell us, okay? And so he begins with, for I do not desire. This is an introduction to tell us that what he is about to say is very important. He states it in the negative to highlight what he does, in fact, desire. Everybody got that? When you say something in the negative, it often highlights what you're trying to say. He says, brethren. Brethren is declared to show us that this is a matter which is directed to the world in general, right? Now, to the church in particular, to believers within the church, okay? It is this group of brethren which he desires to impart this knowledge to. As this is an epistle intended for the duration of the church age, which lasted 10 years and then something else. No, it's for the entire duration of the church age. Paul's use of brethren then includes all of us even us today. He is speaking to believers. His words are doctrine for the church age. They are marching orders. They are prescriptive in everything that they say. Obviously, he has descriptive verses. He says, I was shipwrecked. Okay, that's not prescribing anything. But when I'm saying that he gives us something that is revealing something to us, it is a prescriptive verse, and it is intended for the entire church age. There's none of this cultural nonsense. There's none of this you know, up until the temple was destroyed or any of that type of stuff. He is the apostle to the Gentiles during the Gentile-led church age, okay? Paul's use of brethren then includes us even to this day. It is not something which is fulfilled yet, all right? That you should be ignorant, ignorant is his next words. So I'm going to read it again. He says, for, right? And then he says, brethren, that you should be ignorant. It is a particular phrase that Paul uses to stress the importance of knowing, comprehending, and accepting a particular point. To see other such matters, which Paul deems likewise important, we could go to Romans 1 verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 12 verse 1, 2 Corinthians 1 8, 1 Thessalonians 4 13. In this case, we are asked to not be ignorant of a particular mystery. Okay, he uses the word mysterion, where we get our word mystery today. It is something that is not revealed before. In the New Testament, a mystery is something which was hidden in ages past, but is now revealed. Explaining a mystery doesn't necessarily mean that it is yet fulfilled, such as is the case with this verse. He says, I show you a mystery, right? It's something that's coming in the future. It's not necessarily fulfilled. But 
that it is disclosed now from Paul's hand to understand what will someday come about. Okay, I'm going to stop right there for a second and I'm going to show you something about a mystery. Okay, I bring this up from time to time during the prophecy update because people are confused about um, uh, Matthew 24 in particular, but other verses that they misquote out of uh, rapture verses. Okay, and I'm just going to give you an example of this so you can see what's going on. People will say, no man knows the day and the hour, and they apply that to the rapture. Okay, I know you've heard that a million times. Some of us have done that in the past. Yeah. Don't ever do it again. Why? Because he's not speaking about the rapture in, what's that? Second appearing. Yeah, that's right. He's speaking about something that uh, pertains to him and the Jewish people. He is speaking to Israel under the law. They are being told something. They had no idea that there would be a church age. Absolutely none, zero. He never alluded to it. He never brought any church age doctrine up when he spoke to them in those three synoptic gospels. But to confirm that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay, 1 Corinthians 15, which is speaking of the old man, Adam, it's speaking of the new man, Christ, it's speaking about what our spiritual bodies will be like, etc. What does he say in verse 51? Behold, I show you something that Jesus already said in Matthew 24. No, he says, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That is the rapture. That is Paul's description of the rapture, which he also defines elsewhere. He used the word mystery. That means that it was never, never revealed before the time that he said that. And therefore, you cannot take no man knows the day and the hour and insert that into your rapture theology. It's a poor handling of scripture. So if you hear somebody say that, correct them. Say 1 Corinthians 15 shows that you were incorrect in that. It's not speaking about that. Look at your end times events when you look at Matthew 24. As a matter of fact, if you want to see the events, take Matthew 24 and line it up with the book of Revelation and what's happening, and you will be able to see the events as Jesus is speaking about them. And from Revelation 4 verse 2 until Revelation 19 verse 10, guess who he's speaking to? He's speaking about Israel. What's happening in the seven years of the tribulation period? He's not speaking to the church at all. So there you go. That is what I'm trying to show you about a mystery here in Romans chapter 11. He's showing us something that was not revealed before. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I just made a mark and oh, there it is. Okay. So the rap. Oh, I just, I went through it. Now I, I read my comments. The rapture is an excellent example of a mystery. See, I, I get ahead of myself and I had to read the comments first. Anyway. Concerning the Jews, the Gentiles, the church age, and the kingdom age, Paul will now reveal this mystery, okay? So this is something that comes from Paul. You're not going to find this doctrine anywhere else before Paul, okay? There may be hints of it, shadows of it. Like, you know, we do um, in the sermons, we will often find pictures of Jesus, right? Or pictures of the rapture, even back in um, the book of Exodus. But that isn't something that they would have looked at and said, oh, there's going to be a rapture someday. It's something for us to understand during this dispensation. Okay. Next, he states the reason for the mystery's disclosure. Paul's going to tell why he's disclosing it. Lest you, meaning the church, the, church, the Gentiles in particular, Gentile-led church age, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Okay. So that's the reason why he's disclosing the mystery. This is referring back to the overall thought of verses 19 through 24, many of which we just read. We are not to be haughty over the Jews because we are wild branches grafted into the holy tree. 
They are natural branches. We can easily be broken off again. They can easily be grafted in again. Yes, okay? So they are the natural branches and so on. Because of these things, we are not to be wise in our own opinion. Okay, now somebody emailed me and he said, I, I had always struggled over the doctrine of loss of salvation because of branches being broken off. And he said it was very helpful that we talked about that last week, that the natural branches are not speaking of individual salvation, speaking of the Gentiles, speaking of the Jews. Okay, so we can be broken off as individuals, but that is not what that verse is speaking of. Okay, so anyway, um, uh, and the explanation for this is we're not to be wise in our own opinion because they can be grafted in, we can be broken off and all those other things. The explanation for this is because he writes, blindness in part has come upon Israel, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, well, if there's a fullness of the Gentiles in the church age, and he says that right there. And blindness in part has happened to Israel until that time. What does that tell you? If you just logically think it through, what, is, what does it tell you? That there is a point where the fullness of the Gentiles means there won't be any more Gentiles during this dispensation. That does not mean more Gentiles won't be saved, but there is a point where there is a fullness of Gentiles after which, what? Everything's going to shift to the Middle It's going to shift to Israel. That's exactly right. After the time of the fullness of the Gentiles. Whatever that means. He doesn't explain it right here. You have to infer it from other passages. But after the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, if blindness in part has happened to Israel until then, then what does it mean? That the blindness will be gone. It'll be over. It'll be lifted. Exactly. If you just think it logically, don't get caught up in big macro things or, or micro things. Just look at it sensibly. If there is blindness in part upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, then whenever that, whatever that fullness means, you don't even need to know what it means, but whenever that happens, it won't be blinded anymore. Okay, there you go. Very simple. There is something future to the time of Paul's writings, and even future to us now, obviously, because it hasn't happened yet, as explained above concerning epistles intended for the church age. I mentioned that last week, which is relevant to his discourse on the state of Jewish believers. Blindness in part shows us that it is only a portion of the whole. Blindness in part is a portion of the whole, be it a large portion or be it a small portion. There are, ex ex excuse me, exemptions. I get stuck in my, my words and I start stuttering. And there are exemptions to whatever the blindness in part is. Okay, then he says, has happened. Blindness in part has happened. That explains the blindness pertains to Israel. It pertains to Israel in part, and that it was in effect at the time of Paul's letter. All got that? It was upon Israel, it was partial, and it was at the time of Paul's letter, a time very, very early in the church age, and even prior to something major that happened to Israel. The, so. the exile, the destruction of the temple, and the dispersion of the Jews. He is writing this at a very early time in the church age, and yet he says, blindness in part has come upon Israel. He's writing for all of the church age, however long it's going to be, whether it's going to be 100 years or if it's going to be 2,000 years, it's irrelevant. He's writing it to the Gentiles saying that blindness in part has come upon Israel. People get so stuck on the length of time. Right? They, they think that like God just is 
inhibited because Israel has been gone for 2,000 years. Well, it, it just can't be. I don't understand that thinking. It's so clear. You know, what does it say in the Psalm 90, verse 4? Anybody know what it says? It's repeated in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. What is this? Let me just go to 2 Peter really quickly and I'll read it. It says there in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, he quotes Psalm 90, verse 4. Kind of it paraphrases it, but he says, um, 2 Peter, oh, I got to get in the right chapter. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. That's right. So we don't need to get stuck on long durations of time, which especially replacement theologians do. They love to get stuck on things because this doesn't make any sense to them. How can it be that Israel will be Israel again? It's been 1500 years and here we are and we're the church and we're expanding around the world where William Carey we're evangelizing India the church age is growing it's going to go on forever and then Jesus is going to come back after we've made the world perfect that's what they even to this day believe they are ushering in the kingdom age <gasps> we're, 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 our churches are falling away so quickly around the world that it is impossible for me to even comprehend I think about it and I think how can this happen how can this church, which was founded on Christ, which lasted for 150, 180 years, is all of a sudden, within a 10-year time frame, completely falling apart? Completely falling apart. Just gone to seed. Anyway, but that's what's happening. So um, we have uh, the fullness of the Gentiles as a set duration of people. Okay? God is building a temple with people as living stones in that temple. We all know those verses, or we'll get to them in a couple years if uh, you don't know them. An architect, arch, architect plans the construction of a building. Let me ask you something. Rather than me reading that to you, what does an architect do when you say, I want to build, we'll say a house, okay? Do you go to the architect and you say, well, give me a rough sketch? What does he, what does he give you after you've come to him to build you a house? Precise, Precise right? He, he figures out how many board feet of wood you need. He figures out how many, uh, what do you call this, drywall, how much drywall you need. He figures out how many boxes of nails you will need, how many uh, you know, uh, feet or even miles of copper wire you need. He figures out the copper tubing or the PVC for your plumbing. He figures out where the fixtures go. He knows every single detail of that. So when he says this house is going to cost you $221,427 to build, he's got to be right. Because if not, then his firm is the one that is in error, right? That's not going to happen. They know exactly what it's going to cost at the market prices of the day. If the market changes, that's completely irrelevant. But forget the prices. Just figure the number of cinder blocks you need. Figure in all of the tile that you need. Everything he knows right down to the exact square inch, right? Our architects, God, they're fallible people, right? Do you think that God is not building something absolutely exquisitely perfect that he knows every single person that is being built as a living stone, right? There you go. That's the point. Okay, so... God is building a temple with people as living stones in that temple. An architect plans the construction of the building to the minutest detail, dimensions, amount of materials, placement of things, uh, time until completion. They also know how long it's supposed to take if all the workers show up on time and they didn't party all night long and they figure in the holidays and everything else will be done on March 27th with this house, right? And we'll put down the sod that afternoon, turn on the sprinkler, and you can move in, okay? God, who is infinitely wise, has every aspect every single aspect of his temple contemplated. When the set portion of Gentiles are brought into the fold, 
there will be a removal of the blinders from the Jewish people. Now that you've heard that, doesn't that make sense? Mm -hmm. Doesn't that make absolute sense? He is building a temple and then the blindness of Israel will be lifted. I and love, love that the verse says all Israel. Not that's right. All Israel will be saved. Now that doesn't mean every Jew will be saved. That's something that no. we got to be really careful about because people will say, oh, every Jew is going to be saved. I hate to tell them that two thirds of them are going to be wiped out during the tribulation period when the tribulation period ends at the end of it every jew that is left will be saved all israel will be saved they will understand who their messiah is we'll stop right there and we'll because of what she just said we'll go to zechariah chapter uh uh let's see here um 14 is that i don't think that i think i want 12 is that right um what's that 1210. Yes. Okay. 1210. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Guess what? This is at the end of the tribulation period after a great deal of Israel's not saved. So when it says all Israel will be saved, we need to be careful with that. But it says um, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. And, the fam and it goes on like that, all these families. It goes on to the end. So they are going to see their Messiah come back. He's going to return to rescue them. Revelation 19, 10, 19, 11. Okay, he's coming on a white horse. He's coming with us. He's coming with us. Okay, great stuff. So we don't have to worry about those details. We don't need to worry about those type of things. We already have the book written, okay? The plan is set. God is building his temple. At a certain time, the blinders are going to be taken off. The fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles is not the same as the, begins with the T, ends with Imes, the times of the Gentile, okay? That's Luke 21, verse 24. Although there is an overlapping of the two, the times of the Gentiles began when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. He raised the temple and exiled the Jews to Babylon. Since that time, they have never run their own show. They were always under somebody else. And even to this day, they are not independent. They are an independent nation, but they are relying on the U.S., they are, do not possess all of Jerusalem. They certainly don't possess the Temple Mount, right? So we are still in the times of the Gentiles, all right? The, um, since then, foreign powers have ruled over Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is key to it all. They gave back the uh, Temple Mount after they, uh, they got it. Moshe Dayan handed the key back to the walk, and they locked the door, and they said, that's it. It's our Temple Mount, right? Israel probably could have taken care of that and just overrun these people, but as a sign of, you know, appeasement, they did that. What well, was part of God's plan? Behold, I will make Jerusalem a trembling cup, a stone of trembling, and all that kind of stuff, right? He's going. So God knew that that was going to happen, just like He knew how many Gentiles there would be to build His temple. He knew all of these things, and He has put it down in His Word. Okay, so this is continued until today, even though Jerusalem is under Jewish control. The Temple Mount remains under the authority of the Muslims. And through a temple, though a temple will be built on the Temple Mount, this is absolutely certain. Revelation chapter, anybody? 11, go and measure, measure the temple, right? Okay. 
that's that one crazy guy that was arguing with me over this. He's saying that we are the temple. It's we don't expect another temple. And I said, read Revelation 11. You don't measure a bunch of people. You measure a real building, right? He says, well, sure you do. He started taking all these verses out of context because now he's caught in this, this completely wrong. There is going to be a temple. We absolutely know that there's going to be a temple. All right. It's coming soon to a millennium near or a tribulation period near you with a temple in Jerusalem. Okay. So, but just when people start arguing like that, what does Paul say to uh, Timothy and to Titus? Admonish them once second time and then have nothing to do with them don't argue stupid it's not worth it there's no point in showing yourself that it is contagious and that's why in the the proverbs it does say and i'm going to misquote this so please understand this is a misquote of these proverbs but it says argue with a fool lest he become exalted in his own eyes and then the next one or it might be the one before that it says don't argue with a fool lest you become like him now that's a misquote but you get the the, the idea there's a point where you argue with the fool so that he doesn't feel elevated and other people don't say that guy knows what he's talking about. But if you keep arguing with that idiot, guess what? You're going to be just like him and everybody's going to say, what a waste of time, me reading that commentary and watching those two guys have their little tiff. Correct a person once, do it a second time, and then have nothing to do with them. It's not worth it and it makes you look bad. Okay, so let's see here. Temple, uh, Fullness of the Gentiles, where were we? Um, okay, yet yeah, it's under the control. Temple Mount will exist through the tribulation period. That's a revelation. Oh, and I wrote it right here, 11 and 1 and 2. Um, there will still be a defining Gentile element to it during the tribulation period. This is probably referring to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is now there, and which may continue to stand side by side with the temple and probably the Dome of the Rock on the other side, and then the temple will be in the middle. That's probably what's going to happen, okay? People say that the uh, Dome of the Rock is going to be destroyed, and listen, the, is, it, the world would be up in arms about that. I, I just don't see that. I think what's going to happen is that temple is going to go right in the middle of the two, and they'll be there. But I could be... the foundation? Yes, there, there is. If you uh, uh, look, there are certain people that claim that there is a foundational structure that that represents where a temple was in the middle anyway. Now, I can't verify that. I've brought that up before, I've talked about it, and I do believe that's correct, but I can't verify it. And there's so many people that lie about stuff about Israel and Jerusalem that it just goes on and on and it gets nauseous. It just does. So all you can do is say, this is what I've heard. I, I'm not an archeologist, I'm not a specialist in all those type of things, but my, my best guess is that the temple will be right in the middle of the two. It says the outer court is left to the Gentiles. There you go. Whatever it is, I don't argue it because it ain't happened and there's nothing definitive out there. But we do know that there will be a temple, 100%. I will argue that point. Okay. In contrast to the fullness of the Gentiles, though, we're talking about not the, the times of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles is speaking of the church age and of the grafting in of Gentile believers. He's been setting it up to get to this point. He's been talking about the olive tree. He's been talking about you Gentiles. And now he's saying, don't be haughty and all that. He's been logically making his argument just like he did on salvation just like he did on election and all of these type of things he makes an argument and he comes to a point okay so the grafting in of gentile believers although this technically began at pentecost as is recorded in acts chapter 2 speaking of the church age it actually started in acts chapter 8 
with the Holy Spirit coming upon those in Samaria, and then more completely in Acts chapter 10, thank you, with the conversion of the household of Cornelius. It really picked up steam at the calling of Paul and with the introduction of his ministry. These key passages in Acts show the transition of the focus from Jew to Gentile. To Gentile. Thank you. Okay. Life, life application, and we'll go on to the next one. No prophecy isn't fulfilled, and the church has not replaced Israel. That's your life application for that verse. 1126. That's absolutely right. But Jew and Gentile are both in there, right? Yeah. And the building is going to be complete, but it says the blindness of the the uh, uh, Israel, thank you, is part blindness. So, is the, is the well, the foundation is the Jesus is right. Oh, but in one verse, he says that Jesus is the foundation, in another, he says that the the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Okay. There's no contradiction in there. Okay, you need to understand the apostles and the prophets spoke of. Jesus. So their word, it doesn't mean that the apostles and the prophets are actually the foundation of the church. It's their proclamation that is the foundation of the church, and their proclamation is Christ Jesus. So when it says in one verse, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, uh, I don't want to get wrong. Anyway, it says that Christ is the foundation. He is the foundation. And then later it says he's the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Guess what? Jesus is everything. He's the cornerstone. He is the foundation. His spirit dwells in us and therefore he is the walls. He is the columns. He is the capstone. Everything comes back to Jesus. Everything. Okay. Now, not literally, we are the living stones, but he's dwelling in us. If it wasn't for him and his spirit, we wouldn't be one of the living stones. Every single thing about what God is doing comes back to Jesus Christ, the Lord. Everything. Okay? So, 1126. And so, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Okay. Once again, it's quite obvious who's being spoken of. If he has been talking about you Gentiles, and then Israel, and then you Gentiles, and then Israel, and he's been making this distinction, and then he suddenly inserts again a verse from the Old Testament which speaks of Zion, it speaks of Jacob. Where does that error come from? I mean, it's just hard to understand, but here we go, 1126. Care and context needs to be taken when considering Romans 11, verse 26. Care in, in interpretation of the word all in particular, which we just spoke about here just a minute ago. Okay, I had somebody, and I'll, I'll divert here for a second. Now, I've said this before, and we have to be careful when we use the word all. In the Bible, when it says all, it doesn't mean always all. And if it says every, it doesn't always mean every. You base your determination on whether all means all or doesn't mean all based on the context, context right? Context is king. If you take something out of context, you now have a pretext. Somebody emailed me this morning, just this morning, about a question about all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And somebody had told this person that only pertains to adults, right? And I said, that is an incorrect interpretation of Scripture. I said, Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are either in Adam, Adam or we are in Jesus. Christ, right? And then you go back to the 51st Psalm and David says, I was conceived in iniquity. I was born in sin or a little misquote there, but right. 
all people have sinned, even if they haven't done one thing to sin, Adam sinned for us. He is our federal head. That is the way that the, the Bible speaks. It speaks of a doctrine which, oh, guess what? The rapture isn't in the Bible, right? Well, the doctrine is in the Bible. Is the term original sin ever used in scripture? No, but it is taught. When the Jehovah's Witness come to your door and they, do you know that there's no such thing as the Trinity? What? Why? What? It's not in the Bible. Look it up. You get on your Bible. There's no Trinity. I'm becoming a Jehovah's Witness. It doesn't matter. It doesn't say the word Trinity. The doctrine is taught in the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's very clear. Okay? So. Corinthians 14, 13, I think. What's that? Last verse. The, the Father, Son, and... Yeah, and the fellowship of the Spirit. Yeah, all power has been granted to me, and he's definitely God then. I, he's, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They're all right there. All three of them are right there in that one verse. Absolutely. So we have... Tripping them up early. Yeah, like trip say, them up early. Uh, uh, Genesis, chapter 1. Yeah, hello. six. Yeah. Who's, whose image are we made in? Yeah. God. In our image. Well, then, what's this plural stuff? Yeah, what's this plural stuff? Isaiah 6, same thing. Hmm. Who will go for us, right? It's plural. So obviously God is trying to tell us something without being explicit. And then throughout the Bible, he develops the doctrine, right? So when we talk about original sin, it includes all people. But when it says that all Jerusalem was disturbed when they heard about the birth of Jesus, right? Hmm. Not all Jerusalem was disturbed. There were people that had no idea. It was speaking of the leaders in Israel, and so they apply it to everybody in Israel because they represent Israel. And it says all Israel went out, or all the people went out to be baptized by John. And then a little later, it says that they rejected the teaching of John because they were not baptized by John, right? So never, not all alls mean all. Not every every means every. But there are certain alls that mean all. We have to keep this all in this verse in context. I know that was a little bit of a way of getting around there, but I wanted to give examples so that you know when somebody comes to you and says, all Israel will be saved, they say, well, that means the Jews today are saved that don't believe in Jesus. They're part of Israel. and they're No, make sure you keep everything in context or you have formed a pretext. Okay, Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, context is derived from the pre uh, preceding verses, and without this, many have gone ahead making unfounded assumptions and claims. Paul has just revealed a mystery, a point which was not known until it was disclosed by him. That mystery was that blindness in part had happened to Israel until the fullness, fullness thank you, of the Gentiles had come in. That's right. This is known to us now because Paul revealed it. Because we know this and because we have 2,000 years or two days of church history behind us, we can, make, uh, we can make unfounded assumptions such as inserting the church or a sect of the church into this verse. But the context demands that Paul is speaking about the broken off branches, which is Israel, the Jewish people. Secondly, all does not always mean all in the ultimate sense. And then one of the things that I put right here, I just cited to you, so I'm not going to read it, okay? And then I go down next one. I'm not going to read that because I already gave it to you off the top of my head. So, not all were really baptized by John the Baptist, as I said a minute ago, okay? They all came. They weren't all baptized. All meant something other than every single person. So, we have to be very careful when we see the words all, every, etc. Don't form a doctrine immediately. You've got to read all of the surrounding context. Sometimes you have to go to another book of the Bible in order to find out if all really means all. When he says, um, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, that's in one book. 
but I just gave you verses from other books of the Bible in order to substantiate the doctrine of original sin. Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 about it. He's 100% clear of it. Jesus' words in John 3.18 are 100% clear that if you reject the Son, you are condemned already, right? Unless you come to the Son, you're condemned already. So there, there is a very great need to always interpret from the entire context, and the entire context can be rather large, okay? So that's why we have what's called systematic theology. It's a way of looking at the Bible and systematically developing a theology, okay? You do systematic theology in angelology, angelology, and then you have one for hamartiology, which is the doctrine of sin, and then you've got one for uh, anthropology. It's the doctrine of man. All of these different, you got all kinds of doctrines within the Bible, right? You've got the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is anybody begins with the P and ends with pneumatology. Yes, and then the P is silent, by the way. Anyway, so we have all of these doctrines, and we want to make sure that we uh, uh, are systematic in how we, we don't just arbitrarily pull verses, which is very common today because people love to be specialists in one part of the Bible, and quite often doctrines will overlap. Okay, so you need to take things in context. You need to develop a systematic theology, but Here's another thing that you have to be very careful about. You, we've got Ryrie. Charles Ryrie has done a systematic theology of the Bible. R.C. Sproul has done a systematic theology of the Bible. John Calvin did a systematic theology of the Bible, right? They've all done that. Do they all agree? Absolutely not. Not even close. So just because somebody has a DR with a period after it in front of their name, it does not mean that they're a specialist. Just because somebody has translated the Bible does not mean that they know the Bible. Translation is completely different than scholarly commentary. Translators translate. They often will go to scholarly commentaries if they're good translators because they may not be schooled at all in a theology. And to take something and translate it this way may be technically correct, but it doesn't develop what is actually being conveyed. So you've got to be very careful about translations. You've got to be very careful about commentaries. You've got to be very careful about getting looking at somebody and saying, that guy knows what he's talking about because he's done an entire systematic theology of the Bible. Guess what? I bet you that, uh, what's his name, the Mormon guy, uh, Joseph Smith, probably had at least somewhat of a systematic theology. It was a very poor one, but he probably had something that he had developed and then wrote the Book of Mormon on top of that, right? So be careful when you look at titles. Be careful when you look at people that are a doctor or that speak Hebrew or that read Hebrew or that read Greek or that speak all of the languages of the Bible, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. They do it all. Man, they are the cat's meow and the bee's knees. They may have an agenda that is completely contrary to the Word of God. Always be careful about getting awestruck with anybody, okay? What's interesting about that is it kind of goes back to what you first read earlier before we got started with Chicago. Oh, yes. Uh, and it's like, okay, all these different um, authors of the books, and yeah. they all, it, 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 it's a theology or it's a, it's a study that goes all the way through consistently consistently without, you know there's no mixing up in god's mind it is his word and there is a consistent theology there is one consistent theology and that is the word of god unfortunately we are not all specialists i've made errors in my sermons i'm going to make more errors in my sermons i typed esther chapter 10 last monday now the good thing about this and it took me gosh i was up at four o'clock I, I rushed through my morning job instead of an hour i probably 35 to 40 minutes or so i got back home and i didn't leave that chair until five o'clock and i still have a lot of polishing to do on it but in addition to that 
I have another eight sermons or maybe 10 sermons to get through and I can continue to, as I'm going through them, I can continue to refine chapter 10. So I'm not worried about it, but I've come to a conclusion that will probably upset a lot of people, just like Jonah. Remember I stood up here in Jonah and I said, I want you to know I wouldn't say this unless I really believe this is correct. I would not present it. And there are people there are gonna say that is not correct and that's fine. But this is what I have come up with from the book of Esther and you know what? If the Lord's displeased with me, guess what? James 3, 1 tells me that he's going to be displeased with me if I'm wrong. And if I'm correct, that's wonderful. But it is not what most people are going to expect. I can assure you that. I can absolutely assure you of that. But I uh, I will continue to develop. I'll pray about it each day, and, and as I do, and I'll, I'll hopefully not disappoint the Lord. I don't care if anybody else doesn't like what I present. When I present it, this is it. But I will pray that nobody, that the Lord is the one that is not disappointed with my ultimate conclusion about what happens. See, what I'm doing in chapter 10, it's only three verses long. And so the reason why I'm explaining it this way is I evaluate those final three verses. No big deal. It takes you, you know, maybe it took me an hour and a half or two hours to get through them. And then after that, I took all of chapter one through 10 to say, this is what is being presented in Esther. So you understand, that's what I did. And so I have all that time to continue to say, well, refine that as I'm going through it. I don't think the overall model is going to change, but I may have more insights. I may have something I want to say, well, I want to erase that and put a T instead of a P there, whatever. But it, it, it's a marvelous book, even without finding the patterns and pictures of Christ. It's just marvelous to read and to study. So, uh, oh, and guess what? Go ahead. Oh, I'm just loving it. Even if we just stopped with the chapter 10, three verse evaluations, that that's it. It wouldn't bother me at all. I would be perfectly content with the beauty that has been pulled out of the Hebrew and, and the things that are in there. Didn't mean to divert on that, but when I was at the hospital, the lady that checks you into the ICU. Her name was? Esther. That's right. So I told her, and she's up, she loves the Lord. Boy, she just loves the Lord. And I said, guess what I'm preaching on now? She said, what? I said, we started Esther. And she said, oh, Anyway, but it's not a real name. She's Spanish, and her real name is something that nobody can pronounce, and so she, everybody calls her Esther. So there you go. Anyway, um, let's go on. Where was I? Uh, Mark 1.5, Bible, even with, uh, oh, oh, alls and everies is where we were. Okay, therefore, when Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved, it must be taken in such a light, meaning context, okay? He's already shown that branches were broken off. Are they saved? No, absolutely not. They've been broken off, okay? So those that are broken off are not saved, okay? Nor are any which remain separated from the holy root at this time, okay? Oh, I'm sorry. None of the broken branches are saved, nor are any that remain separated from the holy root at this time. Nor will those branches be saved which haven't been regrafted in during the tribulation period. They can be unbelieving all they want. They can do that as, just as much as they want. All Israel is specifically speaking of a future uh, point in time. And Paul shows us when this will be, citing Isaiah 59, verse 20. So I'm going to read you Isaiah, and then we're seeing Paul is citing it. But Isaiah 59, verse 20 says, this is what Paul is citing. He says, um, the Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. So there you go. That's what Paul is citing, okay? After the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, which he said in the last verse, and upon completion of the times of the Gentiles, which we discussed, which overlap, but they are not the same thing, but they do overlap, okay? After that, Jesus will return to Israel and deliver them. 
and then we cited already Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12 details this, excuse me, and it is only speaking of Israel in the land of Israel. Israel, the people in the land of Israel. Zechariah 12 was not written, even one word of it, to the Gentiles or about the Gentiles. Does anybody dispute that? Zechariah was a Jew. He was writing to his people. He was prophesying about them. Just like Jesus, when he spoke to Israel, he was speaking to Israel. He wasn't speaking to the church. You know, I haven't come to the, I've come to the house of Israel, right? Now, one Gentile walked up and she wanted a favor from the Lord, you know, heal my child. And he said, I haven't come to do that. That's not my thing at this point. My thing right now is the house of Israel. All right. And what did she say? That's right. He said, the dogs, eat. and he was so enamored, I guess is the word we would use with her answer that he says, for that answer, I'm going to take care of this issue, right? I mean, it was marvelous. Here's this person that says, I may be a dog, but under a table, I'll lick up any of the crumbs. And that happens in my house every single day, every day, sometimes many, many times. And sometimes they jump up on the table and, oh boy, ooh, uh, good dogs. But let me, And the reason why I say that, if you've never been to my house, Hidako and I eat on the floor. So we eat very low and the dogs are right there. And if you're not watching, man, they'll just put their nose out and, and grab your dinner. You really got it. One of us always has to sit there while she's bringing the food or vice versa because they're sneaky little devils. Anyway, um, so after the time of the Gentiles, Zechariah 12, et cetera, et cetera, the church was still a mystery at the time of Zechariah. Remember when the church was uh, revealed, right? It was after Jesus. Yeah, it was in Acts Starting in chapter 2, they didn't really get it until Acts chapter 10. The mystery was slowly revealed to the Jews, and they said, oh my goodness, there's something called a church, and the Gentiles are taking it over. They, they, they had no idea about that, right? It, a mystery, it wasn't fully understood even at the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ. I've gone through that several times. Acts 1 verses 6 and 7 show that as clearly as anything else. If nothing else, those two verses should. Lord, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? They had no idea, absolutely no idea. And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the father has put in place in his own hand. I know I'm misquoting it there. You just go out and do what you're supposed to do. All right. I am the risen Lord. I am ascending to heaven. Go out and let the world know that. Okay. They had no idea. Okay. So at, the, at that momentous event, meaning the ascension, we can read the discourse between the apostles and Jesus. I just cited it. We're not going to turn there and read it. Okay. Even after their 40 days of instruction from the Lord, because he was there with them for 40 days and he gave them the uh, master's guide to all types of systematic theology, 40 days of intensive instruction from him to his own apostles after that the apostles were still thinking of and expecting a kingdom age and i'm absolutely certain that he probably talked about the kingdom age there's going to be glory there's going to be wonder jerusalem is going to be exalted go back and read the prophets see what they had to say about these things you are not going to believe your role in this kingdom that i'm going to give you and he he told them this for 40 days and yet they had no idea that there would be this giant span of time between the two. They had no idea. Well, their okay. anxious, anxiousness is the same as people who adopted uh, exactly. We can't wait. We have right now, and that's one thing about every generation, 
every generation has thought this is the generation of the Lord. At the year 1000, people were so worried. I read a commentary on this. They thought the Lord is coming back. It's the year 1000, blah, blah, blah. They were all preparing. And then, of course, you get to the 1800s and you get the Millerites and you get all of these people that say the Lord's coming and they all sat around and they waited. They gave away all their stuff and it didn't happen. And what did they do? They spiritualized their incorrect guess and they say the lord has ascended his kingdom is now on earth or whatever he set up his kingdom and have all these crazy theologies that people have come up with seventh day adventists and the Jehovah's witnesses and all of these people that came up with things and instead of saying you know i was wrong i just was wrong the lord isn't here and i i misjudged instead of doing that they make up all kinds of crazy things i can't tell you how many times people have predicted the rapture and this is just in the past 10 years reading these sites and they'll say the lord is coming on this day and then what did they do do they acknowledge they're wrong no they say you know what he, yeah i miscalculated and this is actually what's going to happen or this or this or that and it is insane that people waste their time on that that people watch that that people listen to that it's crazy the lord specifically said it's not for you to know so just let it go he might be back and i really see with israel in the land the, the times have reached their fullness. I mean, it looks like what the Bible says, but I'm not going to speculate beyond that. This time that we're living in may be a 20-year war with Syria and all these things. I have no idea, and I am not going to speculate. And people try, they try to push you into it in emails. You get that a lot. They try to push you into there. And I just oh, say, yeah, yeah, it's great that the Lord is coming. Yeah, I know. Oh, they, they, you just, I just respond with the general, the Lord is coming. And it's it's exciting times. And I just give them a general answer because I'm not getting pushed into that where they're going to say, well, Charlie said, it's not going to happen. Right? Like I said, I tried that in 2005. I was wrong. And I said, I'm wrong. I'm not doing that again. Okay, so um, 40 days after the instruction, the apostles were stink still thinking of and expecting the kingdom age and Christ would come and rule from Zion. This is a specific time, which is detailed in the Bible, by the way, it, throughout the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament speaks of the kingdom age, but it is highlighted for example, in several passages. I'm going to take you to one right now. Isaiah chapter 2 says this. Isaiah. The intel of an them about the kingdom. Oh, yes. Yes, he instructed them about the kingdom. They had their, their theology and their instruction, but it wasn't time for it to happen. But here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 2. This is not speaking about anything that's happened to us at all. Okay, it says in Isaiah 2, verse 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. One, it's speaking about Judah, and two, it's speaking about Washington, D.C., right? Oh, no, I, it, Jerusalem. Okay, so it's not speaking of anything other than the Jews, the people in Judah, and Jerusalem. And guess what? It was a vision that he saw. That means it came to him. He didn't make it up. It came to him, and then he recorded it being a prophet of God. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, I cited this in a sermon not too long ago. I think it was Esther 1. A mountain in the Bible very often will uh, reflect a government, okay? Government. It's something that's going on. So if you think of that, the mountain of the Lord, the government, the place of the seat of authority, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains you've got all of the governments of the world guess what there's one that sits on top of it it is the lord okay his mountain shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it many people shall come and say uh shall come and say come and let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob 
He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, not Washington, D.C., not the Kremlin, not Beijing, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords and the plowshares. You know that for since the United Nations was built, that was right up on the front of the uh, that stone that's carved up there. And guess what? Isaiah uh, two verse um, uh, what four, right? And guess what they've done? They've scratched that off of there. If you look at it, it's not. Yeah, you can't see that anymore. But it still says that, but it just doesn't say where it came from. Anyway, and their spears into pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Is that happening anywhere in the world? Are we even close to that happening? Not even any neighborhood. Not, yeah, not even any neighborhood. Thank you. That was very insightful. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay. I hate to tell people that think that what he is citing here and what he's describing has anything to do with the church age. That is as unrealistic is going out to Los Alamos, where is that, New Mexico, and starting a surf shop. That is how stupid that is. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to sell surfboards, right? Absolutely insane. That's how crazy that is. Anyway, okay, um, we'll go on. Let's see here. Um, build a bomb shelter. Yeah, you build a bomb shelter there, but that's about the only thing you might want to do. You, you certainly aren't going to start a surf shop unless you're just absolutely begging to go out of business. You, you know, and people do that. You see people that'll start a business and you think, I, I'm certain that they're going to open today and they're going to put on the front door going out of business sale because it's just so obvious. Some things are not meant to be in a surf shop in Los Alamos, New Mexico. I'm sorry. It, it's not going to make it. Just get your going out of business sign ready. Okay. Anyway, um, Jesus did not tell the apostles that they had misinterpreted those verses from Isaiah that I just read you, nor did he tell them that the church now assumed this role. They expected Israel to be the head of the nations and the law to actually go forth from her. And Jesus did not correct them on this. It remained an unchanged tenet of their belief system. Everybody got that? These Jews that saw Jesus, that walked with him, that were instructed on the kingdom age, did not believe that it was anything other than them in the land of Israel from Judah and that the Lord himself that they were about to watch go away would come back and rule from that spot. That is what they believed, and that was because they were instructed in that by the Lord, okay? Jesus merely told them to go out, get the business of spreading the gospel, and leave the times and the dates to the Father, okay? And that includes the date of the rapture, because they were becoming a part of the church age, whether they realized it or not. The times and seasons are totally up to the Father. We can get a general, as I said, a broad perspective because the Bible is clear. There's a point in history when Israel would be back in the land and woohoo, that is happening in our lifetime. And all of the marvel that we see and all of the things that are happening, it's wonderful, but we don't know. And these people that keep predicting the rapture, I, oh man, it's just, it, it, it's just, mm. anyway, the new covenant promised to Israel in Jeremiah 31 verse 31 will be realized on a national scale at some point in the future. Does everybody know what it says in Jeremiah 31, 31? Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant. Let me read it to you. I don't want to misquote it. Uh, Jeremiah, okay, 44, 43, 38, 36. Here, we're getting there close. 29, 30, and 31. Okay, 
it says here. Now listen carefully, because this is the new covenant that is prophesied to Jeremiah through Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, it's not the old covenant, with the house of the Gentiles. Judah. Oh, oh, that's right, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Okay, now, you could say, well, we've replaced Israel, and therefore that pertains to us. And that is what replacement theologians will say. But then you have to ask them, did the Lord take us out of Egypt by hand? The answer is no. He only took one group of people, and therefore, if they, they want to assume the first half of that verse, then they have to also assume the truth of the second half of the verse, which they can't. They were not led by the hand out of Egypt. But then what will they do? The next thing they will do is say, we, we were spiritually led out of Egypt. Because Egypt pictures bondage to sin, and we all know that it does. But that's not what Jeremiah was speaking of. He was speaking of a literal out of Egypt and a literal covenant made after they left Egypt with them. So there is a point where they will have to, in literally one verse, they will have to change their theology about this is actual, this is historical, this is literal, and this, this is not actual, historical, and literal two or three times in a single verse. They have to pull things out completely, so convoluting the pages of scripture that it no longer makes any sense at all. It is a very, very perverse theology. Once again, it's almost understandable up until this time of history, but no longer. I, I, there's no longer an excuse for people to hold on to this doctrine. Okay, so um, Jeremiah 31, 31 will be realized on a national scale, okay? But there are still seven years allotted under that old covenant that he just mentioned. He mentioned the new covenant, the old covenant, when I took you out. Remember what it said in Leviticus 26? That's why we go through the Old Testament is because we want to learn what applies here. If we just go to the New Testament and we just study it all of our life, we will have a completely skewed perception of what God is trying to tell us. We have to understand the law. We have to understand the prophets and we have to understand the historical writings in order to form a proper systematic theology. So we have um, Daniel 9 verse 24 through 27. I cite it in the prophecy update all the time. I'm not going to today. That says that there are seven more years for Israel, okay? Um, and before this occurs, they will still live under that law, but the law, it specifically says in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, why? He gives them six things, three bad things, three good things. You're going to seal a prophecy. You're going to do this. You're going to end iniquity. You're going to do that. Those things have to happen, and they have not happened to Israel. And when that is affected, they will understand who Christ is, and they will come to their saving knowledge of Jesus, and then all Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved in the sense that the nation will be delivered at Christ's second coming. They will triumph over their enemies, and the world will enter a new age and a new yeah, millennium. But what's it called? Dispensation. Good. Okay. Um, and if you want, see Revelation 19 for the exciting details. I'll take you there, and we'll just read a couple of them just so you can see how wonderful this is. New Dispensation 19.10. Uh, we'll go to 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And this sappy Jesus that people talk about in all of these posts on uh, Facebook, you know, that I'm talking about the Presbyterians and all this, and God would never judge anybody and he would never condemn anybody to hell and he's 
listen, read Revelation. And what do you do? They just shut down. It's like, oh, that book doesn't belong in the Bible. He judges with righteousness. He makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Where is the symbolism for that come from? Great sin. Yes, but where in the Old Testament? Oh. Isaiah, I think it's 60. Uh, let me see if I can find that. Oh, Hang on a second. What's that? Yeah, I've tread out the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Let me let me get you there. I think it's 60-something. It might be 50-something. But we're going to find it before we go on because I want people to understand that, yes, Jesus is loving. Jesus is all good, but he is also all just, and he is really angry at the sins of the world. If you find it before I do, just let me know. Um, 63. We'll go there right now. Thank you. Um, yes. Thank you, Freda. Who is this who comes from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra. This is what's being referred to in the book of Revelation. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Now tell me that's not scary. So much for this Jesus that would never send anybody to hell, that he's going to overlook your sins, and he's going to say, you know, it's okay if you're gay. You know, that's okay, like the Pope did this past week. Don't worry, we're not going to judge you on that. This is the righteous God of the Bible. Just because he's loving does not mean that he is not just. And if he wasn't just and righteous, and if he didn't pour out his anger, guess what? He wouldn't be God, because God must judge sin. And if you think about it, now think of that symbolism, okay? The day of my vengeance, the year of my redeemed has come. I'm going to go a little further, and I'm going to tell you. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Okay, that's scary verses. Revelation 19 is just recapping that. It's just giving it from the New Testament perspective. But it's the same battle. It's the same Lord doing the same thing. But now think about this. Why is he doing that? Why is he going to come and destroy the peoples like that and actually destroy them where there's blood spattered all over his garments? Because Why? The, the opportunity to be... The opportunity. They have yes. rejected his grace. Now, let's go back a little further. Why don't we get that? Why don't we get yeah, stomped on? We're in him. And we are in Jesus. Yes, we are. And what does that mean? He was punished. Now you start to think about, let me take you to what it says right here. And I want you to put together what Jesus did for you and why this is necessary for it to come on the nations. We are in Christ. He did this for us. And it says here, hang on a minute. You think about this, what he says. He says, um, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, 
If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you fall into temptation. The cup is God's anger. Go back and read Jeremiah, the cup of the nations. You're going to drink this cup. You're going to drink God's fury. Why don't we get that? It's because he took it for us. So if you want to understand the glory of what Jesus Christ did for you, think on the horror that is coming on the world. And this sappy Jesus, this sappy God that is taught in churches all over the world has nothing to do with reality. God is really, really, really angry at sin. And Jesus Christ really took all of the horror of that sin upon himself for you and me. And yet people walk around and they say, I had somebody, I, I, I can't give too much information away when I talk about these things, but I can give details. I had somebody email me and say, there's a person that's uh, in our prayer group and this person has unrepentant sin and they're doing it constantly and they want to get it out of their lives before they go on. And I was horrified hearing that. And my, my instruction to this individual was get them out of your prayer group. That person does not belong in there until they come to an understanding of what they are doing. Christ really took the fury of God's wrath for us to not do those kind of things. Now we all sin. We all fall short. I guarantee you I do every day. There's not a day that I don't do something stupid and I think, Lord, I'm sorry, but I'm convicted about it usually before I'm done doing it, right? Comes out of my mouth and I say, I just can't believe I said that or I did that or I thought that, okay? And I know that most of you probably struggle with it. And if you don't, you're probably not telling the truth. But do you understand that what Christ did was, was for us exactly what, so we can't look at this thing that he's going to do in Isaiah chapter 63, and in Revelation 19 and say, that's wrong. We can't do that because he's already done it for us. We are the recipients of really, really great favor if you think about it. I'm just about to cry, so I'm not going to go into that anymore. But you understand what's going on here when we talk about these things. It, it's really important to understand what is going on in the pages of the Bible. Sin is the problem. It will be resolved. And there is a lot of trouble and distress all the way through. And most of it went on Jesus most of it and that that didn't is going to be poured out on the people of the world okay when the lord jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty mighty angels, angels and flaming fire flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who know not god and who do not obey the gospel of the lord jesus absolutely that's the unbeliever the gospel is the only way to escape that that's the only way and once again, you know, we talk about it and, you know, you read my devotions, the people that do read them, they know I say it again and again and again and again. There is no such thing as meriting grace. God's grace is what saves us. And it is by one way and one way alone. And that's by faith. That is it. We can't say I've done all these great things for God. Listen, if you reject what Jesus did, that is the greatest greatest disservice of all i don't care how wicked you are if you say i'm not going to accept what jesus did on my behalf and you understand it rightly that that is that cancels out anything that we could ever do that's good unbelief is the greatest sin of all it is absolutely the greatest sin of all we cannot cannot be saved 
if we stay in a state of unbelief. We can be saved if we stay in a state of rebellion, if we do believe, but we cannot be saved if we are in a state of unbelief. It will never happen. Jesus Christ gave us one way and one way alone, and that is to accept what he has done, to receive what God has revealed in us. Now, I've been talking too much, and we're just going to have to finish this verse and be done. But um, let me see here. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 shows us this. Before this occurs, they, uh, where they live under the law. All Israel will be saved in the sense that the nation will be delivered at Christ's second coming. They will triumph over it, Revelation 19. I got through with all that. And because we have five more minutes and we don't have enough time to do another verse, before I give the life application, I will read Daniel 9, uh, uh, 24 through 27, just because we got five minutes and we got to spend it on something. So Daniel 9, 24 through 20. It's always good to review these things anyway. I mean, you can read the Bible a thousand times and still need review. So 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. It's 490 years to finish the transgression. Number one, bad thing. To make an end of sin, bad thing. To make a reconciliation for iniquity, bad thing. They've got to do all of those, get rid of those bad things. And then three good things to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you've got three negative things they've got to take care of and three positive things to take care of. This is Israel. This is not the church. It said right there, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Daniel was a Jew. Jerusalem is what it's referring to. It is not the Gentiles. Know and therefore, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince seven weeks and 62 weeks at 69 uh yeah 69 weeks that's 483 years the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times that takes you back to nehemiah so you know the beginning the start date and after the 62 weeks which is 483 years messiah jesus shall be cut off but not for himself remember we talked about the cup and the wrath he did it for us and the people of the prince who is to come meaning the romans shall destroy the city and the sanctuary the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. 2,000 years of just the earth going along, doing what it's doing, lots of wars coming, but there's a point where they're going to multiply and we're going to be at the end times. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. It's going to be, as I say in the prophecy update at times, you, you think, why would somebody like Hamas or, or, you know, the fakest Indians, why would they say we want to make peace for seven years? It doesn't make any sense. You, you think they just say we want to make peace, right? And yet every time something is brought up is we want to try 10 years of peace or we're going to try five years of peace. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you make peace with Japan, you don't say we're going to make peace with you for the next five years and then we're going to come in and teach you all English and you're going to be Americans. We made peace with them. It doesn't make any sense. But this is the way that things are being dealt with in Israel, even today, it's happened several times, they've all fallen through, but it'll be seven years. We already know. If somebody proposes peace and they say we want to do it for 10 years, we know it's not going to happen. If they say we want to propose peace and it's going to be five years, we know it's not going to happen. It's going to be a seven-year peace deal, okay? In the middle of the week, three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall one uh, be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate all that it just speaking of the end times the antichrist is going to be destroyed we know that he is going to be cast right directly into the lake of fire doesn't get anything he's just toasted right away unlike others that will have to go through a judgment and then get cast in the lake of fire he's just off to his his uh final home but anyway um that's what's coming 
that is what Paul is speaking about in Romans chapter 11. He is not speaking about anything other than us being temporarily in this position, however long temporary is. We do know that it's 2,000 years so far. And then Israel will have the blinders pulled off. The focus will go back to them. They will be God's focus. And the law will go forth from Jerusalem, from Zion, the temple, the mountain of the temple of the Lord shall be exalted above all the mountains. Okay, we know that these things are not allegorical. We know that they are going to come to pass. Life application. When reading the Bible, context and intent must be considered. Proper application of these and other principles will ensure a right understanding of what God is doing in human history. Okay. Running ahead without such care can only lead to confusion and even heresy. So we have to be careful in how we handle the Bible, how we interpret it. Don't insert ourselves where we don't belong. We're not the 144,000 know, the Jehovah's Witness believe that. We're not any of those things. We're not the Millerites. We can't predict when Jesus is going to come and sit in our farm and wait for him to come take us away. Those things are not contextually proper. Okay, people that predict the rapture are doing something called a disservice to Christianity. They're doing a disservice to themselves and they're making fools of us and them. So keep things in context. Uh, uh, understand that Jesus is coming. He has the plan. We have a broad outline of it and we can rest in that. And as I said during the last sermon, and I, I'll say it all the way through the book of Esther, we know that we will be treated the way the Bible says that we will be treated, that we will be given eternal life because he's already done it with Israel. He's already shown himself faithful to the most unfaithful group of people on the planet, right? I mean, and I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying that their record is given. Nobody else's is. So we can't really compare it. But we know that they were given these things and they were still unfaithful time and time and time again. And yet he is still faithful to them. Therefore, we have a good assurance that we will be taken care of as well. So let's go to the Lord and thank him for that. Heavenly Father, we certainly do thank you for that. Because each one of us has been a part of the wrath that was poured out on you and the cup that you drank. And we have added to that. And it is our responsibility to not add to that any longer. But to be responsible Christians, to act in a right manner, a holy manner, a just and righteous manner to not be infected by the ways of the world. Help us in this. We're weak, Lord. We're weak in our flesh. We're weak in our, our, our strength. We get tired and we get frustrated. Help us to remember to be responsible Christians during those times and to not fall short. But when we do, we already know that we have an advocate before you. We thank you for Jesus and what he has done. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. And he is also our mediator and our advocate, which means he's our friend. Thank you for that wonderful love that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in his name we close. Thank you. Amen. 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 I actually remember when that Bible of yours was brand new. Yeah, that was given to me by Tom Alley because he we'd be out preaching on the beach and the pages would be flying everywhere. And finally he came up and he handed me one. And he says, I think you need this. So whoops, I can get my glass so I don't push the wrong one. Hang on a sec, folks. Break. Okay, going to break.